Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we'll be talking about the increasingly popular form of trust, the directed trust. And we have the unique pleasure of being joined remotely by the man who helped draft the recent law on the topic. Welcome back, Professor John Morley of Yale Law School. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I mentioned in the intro, you actually helped to write the recent law on the topic. Maybe you can share with us a little about that experience. That's right. I was the reporter for the Uniform Directed Trust Act. The act was finalized in 2017. It's done a lot, I think, to clarify the law and also to make the law in the states that have adopted it. And we'll be talking more about, about what specifically this, these new changes are. But first, let's talk about what a directed trust is. Directed trusts have been in existence for quite some time, right? Yeah, directed trusts are commonly believed to be a new phenomenon, but they've really been around for nearly as long as trusts have been in existence. Since medieval times, people would give assets to a trustee and name someone else as a beneficiary. And then they would give directions to the trustee about how to manage the assets. So I might leave my my estates in Surrey to my nephew, uh, but to be managed by trustee John Smith. That's right. Or, or, or Lord John Smith or whoever it was. That's correct. And the essence of a directed trust is that it's one in which the trustee is subject to the direction, advice, control, whatever you want to call it, of another person. So if I give property to a trustee and name my nephew as the beneficiary, but I retain for myself the power to invest the trust assets or to direct the trustee about when to make distributions to my nephew, then it's a directed trust. So we might think of it as a trust where the different roles are broken out and uh, you you can specialize the different roles. Yes, in an ordinary trust, all of the aspects, all of the many aspects of trust management are concentrated in the trustee. The trustee holds legal title to the assets, but he or she also invests the assets, distributes them, and administers them in the sense of, say, filing the tax returns and so on. In a directed trust, various pieces of those duties can be broken out and retained either for the trustee or given out to one or more directors. They don't even have to be given to a single director. They can be given to multiple directors, either to hold as a committee or to hold individually. I mentioned in the introduction that this form of trust has become increasingly popular. What has that popularity, what would you attribute it to? These directed trusts have indeed been growing a lot more popular. When we formed the committee in the Uniform Law Commission to draft this new Uniform Directed Trust Act, we came in contact, of course, with many representatives from the trust industry who were there to help us draft the statute. And all of them said that directed trusts were accounting now for the bulk of the business done by large trust companies. They've become extremely popular and they're now the state of the art in trust drafting. I think a lot of what accounts for their popularity is the additional flexibility that it provides to settlers, that is to the people creating a trust, to allocate responsibilities to the people who can best bear them. 
Often a settlor, for example, wants a trustee to hold the assets to ensure that there's a solid institution that has the capacity to administer them and to make sure that they're well taken care of. But often that institution isn't really well situated to make highly contextual judgments about how to manage the trust assets. Maybe you can give us uh, an example of a, such a judgment. Let's say, for example, that I've set up a trust for the benefit of my son who has special needs. Maybe he has cognitive impairments or physical impairments, or maybe he has substance abuse or addiction issues. In that case, I want somebody who knows my son well enough to know when he needs assets and when he doesn't. If the son has addiction issues, for example, I don't want the trustee handing out money whenever the son shows up with his hand out. I want somebody who can make a, a hard call about whether it would be in his interest or not to distribute assets. And a big institutional trustee, like say Northern Trust Company, might do a lot of things really well, but what it's not going to do well is making a judgment about when my son is lying or telling the truth. Would you say that some of the popularity is because it enables uh, this type of decision-making to be al allocated to uh, a party who, who would better know? Is it also the, the ability of the settlor to retain some power and maybe feel the comfort of retaining some power of the trust while he or she is alive? Yes, the settlor can retain power either directly by expressly providing for himself or herself some power over, say, when the trust assets get distributed or how they get invested. This is particularly useful, for example, in a family business in which the trustee is given shares in the family concrete pouring company, for example, and the settlor wants to retain control over how that company is managed and over the extent to which the trustee wants to diversify those assets. Often that's useful because a settlor might not want to retain control in other ways by, for example, making the trust irrevocable rather than an irrevocable trust. The restatement, the most recent restatement of trusts provides that if a settlor makes a trust revocable in the sense that the settlor can take back the assets that she's committed to the trust, then the settlor has plenary authority to decide how the trust assets will be invested and managed. There's lots of reasons why a settlor might not want to do that. Tax reasons, administrative reasons, maybe other reasons having to do with with regulation or, or who knows. A directed trust permits a settlor to retain only those aspects of trust management that the settlor most wants. And the Uniform Directed Trust Act was looking to make some changes to the way directed trusts operate. Maybe we can go through those quickly. What, what were you trying to fix? I think first and foremost, we were just trying to bring some clarity to the law. Although there have been a number of existing statutes out there, they are not model examples of quality statutory drafting, to be completely honest. They're sloppy in their use of terminology, they're incomplete in the treatment of the field. And so we wanted to provide a user-friendly statute that was clear and simple and made sense. There were specifically two big areas we wanted to address. The first was how to divide fiduciary responsibilities between the trustee and the trust director. And the second was the extent to which other aspects of trust law applied to a trust director in addition to a trustee. Those other aspects include things like the law of resignation 
or acceptance or vacancy. If the trustee dies, who gets to replace the trustee under what circumstances and what happens? Well, there's a whole bunch of law to address that in the law of trusts. Does that same law apply to a trust director? The Uniform Directed, Stat Directed Trust Act was the first statute of its kind to address those kinds of questions. And we are lucky to have you here to, to explore some of these issues today. Why don't we start with understanding, I guess, some of the basic terms. You mentioned trust director and trustee. How would you define those two roles and, and what's different about them? In a directed trust, a trustee continues to be the same thing that a trustee always was, which was the person who holds legal title subject to the obligations of a trust. A trust director is a harder thing to define. And part of what makes a trust director hard to define is that there has grown up in legal practice and in a few of the existing state statutes a variety of terms which are inconsistent and sometimes a little rough in their usage. Sometimes people use the term trust protector to describe someone who has the power to amend the trust or to remove a trustee. Or they use the term investment advisor to describe someone who has the power to invest trust assets. In the Uniform Directed Trust Act, we rolled all of these different kinds of trust actors together and just collectively called them all trust directors. And to be precise, a trust director in the Uniform Act is any person who's not a trustee, this is putting it a little bit roughly, but any person who's not a trustee who has a power over a trust. Those powers can be as numerous and variable as your imagination will allow. Indeed, we didn't want to limit the character of those powers in the act. So we just said, look, any power over a trust. So you might have multiple trust directors, all with slightly different responsibilities. Yes, you could have multiple trust directors that exercise a single responsibility. So, for example, we imagined that you might appoint a committee of people to decide whether or not the settlor or a beneficiary of the trust had become incapacitated. So let's imagine grandpa sets up a trust and he's lying in the hospital in the throes of his final illness and he's lost consciousness. And the terms of the trust provide that if he loses consciousness, he ceases to exercise control over the trust and instead some other committee of people exercises control. Well, who determines whether he's lost consciousness? Many trusts provide that it's the settlor's physician in combination with maybe his children and his spouse who makes that determination. So that would be an example of a power of direction. It's a power over a trust, which is held in common by a group of people. But you also point out something that's maybe more interesting and potentially more problematic, Joel, which is that you could imagine you have multiple trust directors who each handles a different area of the trust's administration. There was an important case in New Hampshire, for example, called Shelton versus Tamposi, in which there was a settlor who had conveyed a family construction business to a trustee for the benefit of his children. And one trust director, the son who managed the construction business, had authority over how the trust assets were invested. And another trust director had authority over how the trust assets were distributed. And in those circumstances where you have different directors handling different areas of responsibility, they can sometimes come into conflict. In Shelton versus Tamposi, for example, you have the trust director with control over distributions wanting to sell out a portion of the trust assets and pay the cash to one of the beneficiaries. And you had the trust director with power over investment saying, no, I'm not selling anything. They're what governs if, if distributions and investments overlap. 
we didn't provide a solution in the Directed Trust Act because trusts are too variable and different for us to provide a single solution. So the answer is the terms of the trust provide the solution. And in Shelton versus Tamposi, the court picked up the terms of the trust, read them very, very carefully and said, well, in this case, we think it is the decision of the investment director that ultimately prevails. When we're talking about a trust director, what does it actually mean to have the power to direct? A trust director is a person who holds the power of direction. And a power of direction is just a power over a trust. And this kind of leaves people at sea a little bit because what count, it's hard sometimes to know what counts as a power over a trust. But it's a power basically to affect the administration of the trust directly. There's sometimes some metaphysical questions about how such a power can be exercised. We thought about saying it was a power to direct the trustee and the trustee's administration of the assets. But we didn't say that because it's possible to imagine a power that's not so much a power to tell the trustee what to do, but a power to act directly. For example, what if a trust director has the power to execute subscription agreements for an investment? I have a professional investment manager who has the power to, to manage the investments in the trusts, and private equity fund promoters show up and ask him to sign subscription agreements to commit the trust's assets to investments. Let's say the terms of the trust give him the power to do that. Well, it's not a power to tell the trustee what's to do. It's a power to act directly. That, too, is a power over a trust and therefore a power of direction. So it could be the power to act on behalf of the trust or the power to, in a sense, command the person who does have that power. Yes, could be either one. And one of the great virtues of the Uniform Directed Trust Act is precisely that it's agnostic as to what the content of a power of direction is. There are some state statutes like, say, the, the South Dakota Directed Trust Statute, which says that powers of direction fall into different bundles. And if you give a power to a person to direct how the trust invests its assets, for example, then that power comes bundled automatically with a bunch of other powers connected to it, such as, for example, the power to value trust assets. The South Dakota statute provides that all of those things by default go together. And that's a problem for lots of reasons. One is that if some old trust that predates the passage of the statute grants one of those powers, it's not at all obvious that the drafter of that trust also wanted those other powers to come along with it. An example would be an accountant who's given the power to value trust assets. The South Dakota statute would say, well, that accountant also has the power to invest trust assets because the power to value and the power to make investments go along together as a bundle. I think a settler who provided such a power to value trust assets would be shocked and dismayed to learn that an accountant now had the authority to direct what the trust was buying. The trust directors are given the powers that the trust calls for, but what if, uh, what if they need a little bit more to get that done? Let's say I'm given the ability to invest on behalf of the trust, but the trustee refuses. Do I also have the ability and the right to sue on behalf of the trust, to sue the trustee to make sure that my directions are actually being, being carried out? Yeah, the Uniform Directed Trust Act provides what, in constitutional terms, we might compare to a necessary and proper clause. It basically says that 
A trust director has only those powers which are expressly given to her. But then it goes on to say, a trust director also has by default any powers that are appropriate to the exercise of those powers expressly given. So if I have a power to direct investments and I duly tell the trustee to buy a piece of real estate and the trustee refuses, then yeah, I think generally I would have the power to bring a lawsuit against the trustee to enforce my power. And I would probably also have the power to reimburse myself from the assets of the trust for the cost of that lawsuit. Now, let me say which powers are appropriate. The question of which powers are appropriate can only be answered by construction of the trust. That is to say, we have to read the terms of each trust really carefully and assesses the context of the trustees and the director's actions really carefully to determine in any particular instance which exact powers are appropriate to the powers expressly given. When we think of a trust, the trustee has certain obligations. One of those obligations is a fiduciary duty. What is the fiduciary duty, I guess, quickly uh, as a working definition? Ordinarily, a trustee has two main duties. One is the duty of loyalty, that is, the duty to serve the interests of the trust and the trust beneficiaries rather than his or her own interest. And the second duty is the duty of prudence, which is the duty to act reasonably in the administration of the trust. The duty of prudence contains within it a bunch of more specific duties, the duty to collect trust assets, the duty to make affirmative inquiries with the beneficiaries about whether they require distributions, but all of those are conceptually contained within the duty of prudence. Those are duties that apply to the trustee. Do those same duties apply to trust directors? That's one of the great questions in the law of directed trusts. To be specific, there are really two questions. One is, as you put it, do those duties apply to a trust director? And the second question is, well, do they continue to apply to a trustee? The two questions are easiest to see if you just start thinking about some real-world examples. I mean, let's imagine, for example, that my Uncle Vinny has been given the power to direct how the trust invests its assets. My Uncle Vinny calls up Northern Trust Company, which is serving as the institutional trustee, and says, you know, I've got a great investment idea. You should invest all the trust assets in this company incorporated in Bermuda, of which I am the sole and exclusive shareholder. And, you know, you may get some dividends, you might not, but I'll call you back in 20 years. What happens when that sort of instruction is given? Well, the first question is, well, has Vinny breached a duty? Does Vinny have a duty? If he has a duty, chances are he's breached the duty of loyalty. And the, the Uniform Directed Trust Act resolves that question by saying, yeah, Uncle Vinny does have a duty. Indeed, under the Uniform Act, it's impossible to take that duty away. It's impossible to waive that duty entirely. The duty of a trust director is waivable only to the same extent as the duty of a trustee would be waivable. And the standard law of trust says you can't waive the duty of loyalty. What if instead of your Uncle Vinny, you know, a private equity leader was selected as the investment director and she chose to invest those assets in her private equity fund, which may have a track record of significant returns? It would be the same fiduciary duty challenge there that it would be if she were the trustee. Um, Often the terms of a trust waive that particular kind of self-dealing with respect to a trustee. Indeed, many states have statutes that expressly permit trustees to invest in 
mutual funds that they sponsor. And to the extent such a statute applies to a trustee, it would also apply to a trust director. And to the extent the terms of the trust permit those kinds of conflicted investments for a trust director, then then they would be permitted. The default would be it's not permitted unless otherwise allowed in the actual agreement. Yeah, what the Uniform Act says is basically the same law that would apply to a trustee applies. And, and you just stated the law accurately with regards to a trustee. So that was the duty that applies to trust directors. Now that we have a world where obligations and, and responsibilities are, are split up, does the trustee still have the same obligations as in a standard trust? This was one of the big questions for the trust industry. You can imagine the nightmare scenario if you're a trust officer at Bank of America or Northern Trust Company. Uncle Vinny calls you up and tells you to do something that you know is a little nuts. And you don't have the power under the terms of the trust to refuse or to provide some different investment of the trust assets. Can you refuse? And if you don't refuse, are you going to be liable for doing so? A lot of trust companies will say, look, unless our liability is going to be relieved, unless we're going to be freed from liability for doing things that we don't have power over, then we're not going to take this. We can't be subject to the whims of Vinny, and we can't be liable for all of them. And the Uniform Directed Trust Act deals with that question by saying basically that With respect to the areas of trust administration that are given over to a trust director, the trustee is not liable except for the trustee's own willful misconduct in the administration of the trust. Willful misconduct, does that mean that the trustee knows that the trust director is acting in bad faith or in some bad way and then authorizes the action? We deliberately left the term willful misconduct undefined in the statute. But a number of other states have defined similar terms. Delaware, for example, has a similar term in its directed trust statute. And the plain language of that phrase, willful misconduct, would seem to imply some meaning. And I think the most basic thing that it means is that the trustee's misconduct has to be willful. The trustee has to do more than just know that a director is breaching its duty. The trustee must, of its own account, act willfully in a way that counts as misconduct. Willful as distinguished from negligence, even, even potentially gross negligence. Certainly as distinguished from negligence or gross negligence, I think even as distinguished from knowledge or recklessness, the trustee must act willfully. It was deliberately designed to be very protective of trustees. Because again, if a trustee doesn't have primary authority for an area of trustee administration, then it shouldn't be the trustee's primary responsibility. A lot of people found that position controversial on both sides. There are people who thought it was too protective of trustees, and there are people who thought it wasn't protective enough. The people who thought it wasn't protected enough pointed to other statutes in states like South Dakota, which provide no duty at all for a trustee in areas of trust administration that are given over to a trust director. And other people thought, well, you know, there's a trustee who's sitting at the center of this thing. The trustee always ought to have some irreducible core of negligence-based duty. I think willful misconduct is a nice compromise. And it's also a standard that the trust industry has already learned to live with 
and many sophisticated settlers have already learned to live with. We know this because that's basically the standard in Delaware, and Delaware has attracted a huge volume of direct-to-trust assets on the basis of that statute. A quick break for those who are earning MC Lee credit for this course. The code for this interview is 42915. Again, that's 42915. And now back to the interview. In that case, the trustee would basically be able to rely on the judgment completely of the trust director, even if they thought, well, they're way off base. Yeah, that's basically right. Even if the trustee believes that the director is breaching the director's duty, the trustee is not obligated to correct that breach unless doing so would count as willful misconduct by the trustee. That is a, a willful act. On the other hand, you know, let's say the director, the, the trust director requests a specific investment and the trustee is a little bit slow to respond, is, uh, misses some deadlines and loses that opportunity. Is there an obligation there that the trustee is failing to act swiftly? Yes, and the Uniform Directed Trust Act is the only statute in America to address this particular problem. One could imagine a perfectly worthy and good direction, which the trustee just carries out in such a sloppy way that the aims of the direction are frustrated. Surely the trustee has to have some duty with regards to that. And the Directed Trust Act provides that a trustee does. A trustee has to act reasonably in carrying out directions exercised by a trust director. That's not the obligation to second guess the content of the direction. So if Uncle Vinny gives the trustee an investment direction, the trustee does not have to say, is this a good direction or a bad direction? All the trustee has to say is, what do I need to do to reasonably implement this direction? And that would be true regardless of uh, whether he was asking you know, to buy land on the moon or a T-bill. Yes, exactly. Again, the trustee will only be liable for a failure to second guess the content of a direction if that failure amounts to willful misconduct. Okay, so if the trustee, the trustee's obligation is to act and to do so reasonably, do they have the responsibility to report back to say the beneficiary and say, look, you know, while I don't, I don't second guess the investment director, for example, in his or her investments. Maybe I still should tell the beneficiary that, hey, it looks like he's putting all your money in a Ponzi scheme. That's an important question. And there was an important case called Rollins in which basically a settler put a bunch of stock in a local textile manufacturer into a trust. And there were some directors who had the power to direct the investments in the trust. And the directors plainly should have direct, given a direction, ordering the trustee to invest the trust assets in something else. After 20 years, the beneficiaries showed up and said to the trustee, look, you should have told us that the directors were making terrible decisions. And the trustee said, well, that was not my job. My job was to do what the director told me. And the court said, well, the trustee didn't have to second guess the directions or absence thereof from the trust directors, but it did have to tell the beneficiaries 
that the trust directors were screwing up. When that decision came down, a bunch of states added provisions to their directed trust statutes, undoing it, saying that actually, no, a trustee doesn't have an obligation to inform directors about breaches of fiduciary duty and mistakes that are being made by a trust director. And so in the Uniform Directed Trust Act, we provided a similar clause that undid the effect of the Rollins decision. So if a trust director does something stupid, trustee has no obligation to inform the beneficiaries of that. I should say that a trustee often does have a regular duty of accounting or reporting, which the trustee might have to carry out independent of what the director is doing. So they may have to say where the money is being allocated, but not pass judgment on whether or not it's a sound investment. Yeah. So it In most trusts, the trustee has an obligation to provide annual or monthly or quarterly reports, whatever it is, to the beneficiaries, just stating the holdings of the trust. If the trustee fails to to accurately say that the trust's investments are all in this one textile company, well, that's a problem. But it's not the trustee's obligation to go further and say, oh, and by the way, this concentration in this one investment is stupid not the trustee's obligations to say that, to pass judgment. How about between trust directors? You could imagine a scenario where even if the duties or responsibilities don't overlap between various trust directors, the fact that they would know what they were doing may be beneficial or even essential. Is there the ability or a responsibility to share information among trust directors? This too is a nice feature of the Uniform Act that doesn't, isn't addressed and doesn't appear in state laws. The Uniform Act says basically that a trustee and a trust director have a duty to communicate to each other information that they learn in the course of carrying out their responsibilities and that would be relevant to the responsibilities of the other. So let's imagine, for example, trust in which you have a trustee who carries out the routine aspects of trust administration. Then we've got a professional investment advisor who has the power to direct the trustee with regards to investments. And then we've got Aunt Ruthie, who makes judgments about when to distribute the trust assets to the beneficiaries. Well, if the investment advisor learns, for example, that it's going to be really difficult to liquidate the trust's investments, and therefore it's gonna be really difficult to raise cash for distribution to the beneficiaries, that's something Aunt Ruthie ought to know and that the investment advisor ought to have an obligation to say. Similarly, if the investment advisor signs a subscription agreement committing the trust to invest its assets in some private equity fund, that's something the trustee ought to know and needs to know in order to carry out its duties to say file its tax returns and properly account for the trust assets. So under those circumstances, all of the parties have an obligation to talk to one another. So let's say you have someone who's responsible for deciding whether or not certain distributions are made, and then another director who chooses the assets. If the director is who is in charge of choosing the investment assets picks a long-term asset that would limit distributions, does that enable him or her to, in a sense, prior, be prioritized over the distribution director? It's a hard question. 
And we could imagine many other conflicts like that. You could even imagine, for example, two different distribution directors with power to make judgments about how to distribute assets to two different beneficiaries. The opportunities for conflict are myriad. Indeed, I think this is part of why in most organizations, like say business corporations, we always see power being concentrated in a single person or a single group of people. In General Motors, there's a thousand decisions to be made, but all of them are ultimately accountable to the board of directors. And although there are many different directors, they all exercise their power single, uh, collectively as a single unit. You don't have some directors with power over research and development and other directors with power over dividends. They've all got power, the same powers, and they all exercise it collectively. In a directed trust, things can be much messier. And there's nothing really that a statute can do to address that mess. Our basic attitude in the Directed Trust Act, the Uniform Directed Trust Act, was you break it, you buy it. Like, we can't fix a badly drafted trust. We couldn't provide a hierarchy because different trusts are going to want different hierarchies. Different contexts will require different things. And so it's up to a drafter to draft the trust in a way that anticipates those conflicts. So while your, your version of the Directed Trust world may be may provide more flexibility it certainly doesn't avoid the possibility of drafting yourself into a mess that's right we give you enough rope to hang yourself so be careful before we let you go i wanted to touch on one remaining unique aspect of the uniform trust act which was the act applies additional laws to the trust directors that would normally be applied to the trustee can, maybe you can explain that for us. Yeah, and again, the Uniform Directed Trust Act is the only statute in America to address these questions. The law of trusts applicable to a trustee addresses things like what happens if the trustee resigns, how the trustee can accept his or her appointment, when the beneficiaries can remove the trustee, those are all really important questions in the law of trusts, and most directed trust statutes don't say anything about whether those features of the law of trusts apply to a trust director. And so the Uniform Directed Trust Act resolved those questions by saying, yeah, those aspects of the law of trusts generally apply. Well, John Morley, it is always a pleasure to have you on Talks on Law, and for our viewers, it's certainly a treat to have the person who helped write the law here to explain it. It's always a pleasure for me as well. Thanks very much for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.